Welcome to The Legal Lunch, the legal and business podcast where we talk to the people behind the brand. We look at who they are, why they do what they do, and what makes them tick. I'm your host, Porik Grennan. Thanks for listening. John Geary from JV Geary Solicitors in Castlebarra. Thanks a million for joining me on The Legal Lunch. John, I'm really curious and I can't do anything further in this podcast without asking you about your relationship with Jack Charlton. I mean, obviously Jack is, is a legend in Ireland, but he passed away recently, so it's quite topical at the minute. And there were recent articles come up. You wrote an article back in 2000, I think it was, with Jack. Um, and I mean, you've known him since you were a boy, basically. So I'm keen keen to, to kind of explore your relationship with them and how you feel about him having passed away, etc. Uh, yeah, Parik, in fairness, uh, Jack Charlton was a massive icon for, for so many Irish people and I was very lucky to um, to have met with him from a, a very young age. I think I was 12 when I met him first. My family, um, my parents used to run a hotel in Pontoon called the Pontoon Bridge Hotel. Pontoon is in County Mayo. And it was well known as a fishing hotel and used to attract anglers from all over um, the UK and and Europe and beyond. And in 1988, the tourist board, Falcha Ireland, uh, uh, organised for Jack Charlton when he came back from the Euro Championships to come and and make um, a fishing production video to promote angling tourism in Ireland. And he teamed up with um, a well-known English angler who was a household name called Bob Church. And the two of them, together with the film crew, uh, made a 30 minute um, uh, promotional video which went viral at the time uh, there was no such word use of the word in 1988 but um, so during that time um, it was August of 1988 and they had as I say had just come back from, from doing superbly uh, well in the European Championships and uh, the choice of uh, bait uh, at the time they were they were they were trying to promote fly fishing and um, uh, the fly fishing all was, was was a little difficult in August, so they they resorted at, at one or two stages to fishing with grasshoppers. And you do is you have a long fishing rod and a, and a, a floss line which blows the grasshopper out, and the uh, trout find the grasshopper irresistible. Um, but they needed a, a healthy supply of grasshoppers, so word got out that I uh, was available to um, uh, to collect these grasshoppers in the in the local meadows and um and sure i did because uh, it was for big jack and he was thrilled with my my collection every day and we struck up a really lovely relationship and uh, in fact as part of the video he insisted that uh, we go collecting grasshoppers together on glass island which uh, is one of the islands on the lake and that formed part of the video which uh, uh, occasionally gets re- rerun on rte would you believe so uh, that's where i met him first and um I hadn't been in touch with them then for a number of years uh, until uh, the late 1990s when I uh, had an idea to bring out a fishing magazine to promote the uh, River Moy. Uh, being a big fisherman myself, I wanted to to um, uh, promote the river and also help tourism, but also make a few quid as a young, um, a young person at the time. And um, I said, well, who better than Jack Charlton to interview? And... I had at that stage uh, finished my postgraduate journalism course in UCG, uh, so I was well equipped to uh, to interview him, and uh, so I got in touch with him and I reminded him who I was, and of course he remembered, and we, we 
did a, um, an interview which was the uh, centrepiece for the uh, first edition of Hooked on the Moy. And the magazine was launched in the Shelburne, Dublin, uh, in May of 2000. Bertie Hearn launched it and uh, General John de Chastelin, who was a, a big uh, fisherman, he was over at the peace process at the time. And again, I got to know these people through um, the hotel and the background to, to come into Mayo and fishing in Pontoon. So uh, it was a great start. But Jack, anyway, and myself developed that relationship. And when he was in Ballina, he bought a house with his wife, uh, Pat, and we would meet very regularly when he'd be over. He'd come out to Pontoon or I'd see him in Ballina and we'd meet on the riverbank or whatever. So, um, yeah, I was very sad to see uh, the news last uh, last month that he had passed away. And uh, it's um, uh, uh, he's left a huge mark on the country. And I think uh, um, many others have said... Uh, said what he has achieved for the country and uh, I know he has um, uh, uh, couldn't have done any more for us in terms of uh, his football uh, contribution to the, the nation. He really was an adopted son of Ireland, wasn't he? There's, there's stories have come out even since the, the recent publications in terms of his death. Um, the stories of him waving the, the, the Ballina Stephenites flag when they won the championship in 2005. Apparently he came down the end of his own drive of his house and he was waving the flag. Yeah, he was um, he, he, extraordinary. Uh, David Brady tells that story, uh, who, who played football for Mayo, about, about him. He couldn't believe when Jack was at the end of the drive with the, with the Ballina Stephenites flag. And uh, um, I mean, Jack was a household uh, figure, well, well regularly seen in Ballina and... Um, People were, uh, people would leave him alone, which was what he liked. I think they would salute him or say hello to him, but they wouldn't bother him. And uh, that, he loved it in Ballina, loved it in Mayo. And uh, you know, as I say, his his second home was uh, was on the, on the banks of the River Moy, where where they bought a house in the mid nineties. And uh, yeah, uh, just um, just wonderful. There's an excerpt here from the piece that you wrote. I'm going to read it, okay? And you, you'll know. And I wonder, is the boy in this? It's not you in this ex- excerpt. It's, uh, it's not just the fishing that makes... Co- now, this is Jack's word. These are Jack's words. It's not just the fishing that makes County Mayo so special for me. I've met some fantastic people over the years in different towns like Foxford, Swinford, and on different lakes and rivers in Mayo. I picked a young boy up once on my way home to fish the Owen Moore River at Bangor Eris, and I asked him what direction he was headed. He told me that he lived off the main road, not quite in the direction that I was going, but that his home was right on the banks of the Glenamoy River. Not... Being in a particular hurry, I drove him home and was about to head for Bangor when his parents invited me in for lunch, told me that I was welcome to fish the river any time and park my car at, at the riverbank near where they live. I've since become firm friends with the family and called to see them most times I'm over in Ballina. Now, that's just typical, Jack. That's not you by any chance. In the, no, no, it's it's not. Uh, he told me that story uh, when we were doing the interview. And... Um, um, as part of um, commemorating his life, um, the local newspaper in Mayo, the Western People, um, asked me if they could reproduce the um, the article I did, the interview I did with him in 2000. Um, so I was delighted to do that. And, uh, um, so that went up on the Western People website and they got a, a, a phenomenal um, reaction. But one of the things in social media took off was that they wanted to uh, try and identify who that... Um, that uh, hitch- who that hitchhiker was, was and uh, who the family was, and um, uh, there was uh, there was some interesting comments about that. Uh, there was a there was a great reaction. I, I understand from talking to the Western people from the piece. Did he ever come forward? With that? Not that I, not that I know of, but um, uh, you know, I'm sure uh, it wouldn't be difficult to 
track down who it was. I'm sure on the ground people would know who, who that family was, you know. Okay, and go, going back to 1988, I myself have a little piece of Jack Charlton history that, that I didn't disclose downstairs, but I never met the man. But in 1988, my mother's choir, she was a choir um, mistress, as they called them back then, and her choir was chosen to represent Ireland at the opening ceremony of Euro 88. And of course, this was the first time Ireland had qualified for a major European competition we went over, I joined the choir six weeks before we were due to go. <laughs> I got the trip out of it and, and, and left shortly afterwards, uh, I'm ashamed to say. But we went over, uh, my dad actually, we, we were at the opening game, which was Germany and Italy at the time. And uh, my dad was at that game where Ireland, where, where Ray Houghton put the ball in the back of the net. He went down, of course, missed the flight home the next day. But um, yeah, there were super times, weren't they? Unbelievable. Uh, 1988 yeah. really brought the country together, that whole experience. Oh, uh, we never forget it. And will we ever see those times again? I, I hope we will. But uh, hope they, they, they were just um, unbelievable memories and wonderful that you've, you, you yeah. uh, uh, had a little part to play in all of that. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Can I go back to the hotel? Because obviously the hotel was a, you're, you're a lawyer now. Mm -hmm. um, you run a successful practice in Castlebar, but you come from the hospitality background. And um, it was a, quite a famous hotel, the Pontoon Bridge Hotel. Um, and your your parents, did they build that from scratch? or, or? No, it, it was a hotel built um, for English gentry um, in the late 1890s. So it's a, it's a, it was a very old hotel. Uh, they bought it um, in 1964 as a young couple. Um, and it was a 10-bedroomed hotel at that stage. It had um, transformed itself um, very little uh, in the in the uh, previous 70 years, um, but uh, they um, built the business up. Uh, um, at the time, there was very little local business going in because it was regarded and seen as a as sort of the um, the English gentry's hotel, and um, that all changed. My parents um, opened the doors up to, to the local community, and um, uh, they had a family of six, of which I was one of them, and over the following 47 years, they've transformed the hotel from a 10-bedroom hotel to a 30-bedroom hotel, and then it went to a 58-bedroom hotel. And then over the years, we would have added on, you know, extensive banqueting facilities and additions to the bar and, and restaurant and that. So there was, um, it was a organically grown over those uh, almost 50 years. And uh, it was a great place to grow up, a wonderful um a mecca of uh, um, uh, people coming from all over the world to to stay and enjoy and uh, uh, so I would have met a lot, a lot of very interesting uh, people and um, of course my parents uh, said afterwards they're very sorry they didn't have more than six kids because the kids were all roped into working in the hotel and uh, we uh, were uh, behind the bar from an early age and uh, serving food and doing all the jobs that you need to do around a busy hotel so that certainly didn't um, didn't stop my growth or, or hold me back I think it was a, a great um, a great experience and uh, the hospitality funny enough is is is, is um, something you mentioned there and I think it's also extends into the legal business because as solicitors we look after clients and uh, we uh, make sure that they're uh, they're that their corner is well fought. Um, but that, the, the point is we do look after them. And that that sort of hospitality uh, seed that was planted in me has uh, uh, has carried through because, um, you know, 
you, you, customer, you, customer care, care exactly and making sure that people are well well advised and well looked after and um, and I think that uh, that has certainly done me no harm I'd agree now a question has to be asked we were saying downstairs uh, your sisters were involved in the business you were all involved from a young age however you and your two brothers decided um, to take a different career direction in terms, you all took off different career obviously you became a lawyer you had a brother became a doctor one's in HR so what was it that prompted you not to go into the hospitality side of things and really, you know, develop a career or pursue a career in law? Well, um, I was the youngest of six and um, two of my um, sisters um, uh, were, were in the business. One was the general manager and one was the head chef. And um, there was a staff of maybe 50 or 60 and casual staff of, of another 50 or 60. So it was a big enterprise. But they were already in situ and... Um, that was one factor. Um, the other, I suppose, significant factor for me was that, that um, I saw that the hotel business was in the west of Ireland largely seasonal. So you need something to carry you through all year round. Um, and um, But the main reason I wanted to get out of the hotel business, uh, if you could say I was even in it in the first place by, by, by working in, in it at, at weekends and summer holidays, was that I saw how hard that my parents worked um, uh, 24 hours uh, a day, seven days a week. And uh, that is hard work. Um, that is uh, unrelenting. And um, my parents used to uh, take a break in November every year. And literally that was when they'd take their break. Um, they would go every day of the week for the from April to October. And, um, and when everybody else is relaxing for the weekend, they're, yeah. gear, they're gearing up for... A, a busier day than, than than what they've worked all week. Yeah, I, uh, so I, I'd have to say that that was a, a turn off. Because um, uh, if you if you have any hope to uh, enjoy family life, um, you need to have some some downtime at the weekend. And uh, I saw that um, that that the hotel business was very unsociable. Um, whilst I enjoyed it very much, I, I couldn't see myself doing it uh, for for a full time occupation. And. Uh, of course, having gone to college and I did a BA degree in, in politics and, and uh, economics and um, and then I did a postgrad in journalism, there was always a, um, um, something else I wanted to do. And from a, from an early age, I had a big interest in the law. But my grandfather was a solicitor. Um, he was a solicitor in uh, in Limerick, in Kilmallock, County Limerick. And uh, and his father before him was a, was a solicitor in Kilmallock, County Limerick. So there was a... There was, um, uh, a sort of a, a line of solicitors going back. My father wasn't a solicitor, but um, so when the opportunity arose to, um, um, and I might tell you in a moment why I didn't want to be a full-time journalist. Um, that because you're still very much involved in that side of things as well, which we'll discuss. Yeah, yeah I, I keep that up, but I, I suppose the reason, I did a postgraduate in journalism in UCG because I was always interested in, in, in writing and journalism but also because it, get, it meant that I could stay another year in Galway City and as a, a college goer I mean that was just uh, like you know, winning, winning the lotto um, sure. so um, part of my uh, course placement was to work in the Connacht Tribune and um, uh, I worked in the Connacht Tribune for uh, several months and then I was kept on to uh, to stay working with them after I, I left uh, the placement and they had three newspapers every week. They had the Connacht Tribune uh, on a Thursday and a City Tribune 
uh, on the Friday, and then they had a, a sort of a, a smaller newspaper called The Sentinel on a Tuesday. So there was three papers. It was very busy working for all three. But as soon as your story got published, it was back down again to finding the next story. And I found the job satisfaction um, was was up and down and up and down. And in a sense that, you know, I found long term, how am I going to see my achievements here? Because yesterday's uh, uh, newspaper is today's chip wrapper. So, you know, there was there was a great sense of achievement by seeing your articles published in in the paper, but then it was over tomorrow. Sure. And um, so that's when I decided to go and do a um, a course in the in the in, the, in Dublin and in, in the DIT uh, in legal studies and, and pursue the career in law. So yeah. sure. So um, in terms of that, you started off in what's now Matheson. Um, you did your apprenticeship there and. For four or five years, you moved around quite a bit. You, did you? Obviously, you got a lot of experience in different firms there before you set up yourself. Yeah, I was very lucky um, to get an apprenticeship with Mathis and Orsby Prentice. Uh, they were um, top, top, top five law firm in the country and great terms and conditions, uh, great lawyers. And um, so I, I worked with them for four years. And um, after that, I, I always knew I was going to come back to Mayo to. Um, uh, to set up at some stage or, or uh, work as a solicitor in Mayo because uh, my family contacts were all in Mayo. All my contacts were in Mayo, largely speaking. So it was the place to go um, if I wanted to do that. And uh, so I was very lucky. I worked in several law firms over the following six years in Dublin. Um, I would have worked for Margotson and Green um, uh, on Lower Bagot Street with Simon McAleese solicitor uh, at the time for the independent newspaper group also uh, Walsh Warren uh, Judge Michael Walsh um, of the district court that was his former practice so I got great experience working for people like Jean Cullen and Simon McAleese and Michael Walsh and um, and David Sinnott as well and Sinnott and Company in, 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 um, in, in St. Stephen's Green um, so all of that experience came with me uh, when in 2009, I was uh, I was on a maternity contract with David Sinnott and Sinnott & Company. I actually had been doing a, a series of articles for the parchment where I was uh, identifying people who had um, who'd been let go from their positions, uh, were unemployed, and we were just profiling them in various articles. But one of the things I was doing was contacting the department to find out exactly how many solicitors were on the social were on social welfare, and it was staggering at the time. It kept growing and growing. It started off in t- early two thousand nine to be twelve hundred, thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred, and by towards the end of two thousand and nine, there was approximately two thousand solicitors unemployed in Ireland, and uh, it's a shocking uh, figure. But remember back when the uh, crash came in two thousand and eight. It then took a few months for it to kick in and the property market just fell fell apart and uh, all firms were letting go excess conveyancing solicitors and um, there was just a big shock to the system. So um, there was no prospect of me getting work in Dublin. Uh, I, I, I did try, but that was thankfully the catalyst that brought me west. Okay, so setting up in business then, because this is something that obviously I've done recently myself, as you know, and I'm always intrigued as to why people would leave a secure job, like if you had somebody out there today who was thinking, you know, I can do this, I want to set up my own firm, or 
Um, what advice, looking back now, I mean, obviously you were almost forced in, into that situation, but what advice would you give to somebody who maybe was working in the likes of Matheson and was thinking of going out on, the, on their own? Well, uh, it's a big decision. And um, there are people who, who want to have a steady um, job uh, with a, a wage every week um, of a certain level. They're not the people who'll take the risks, want to go out and, and establish their own business and be their own boss because um, it's too much of a risk. It is a risk. Of course it is. Uh, when I set up, I didn't know that um, clients would start to come to me um, fairly quickly um, and that within a, a reasonably short period of time, I would have been well up and running because you're not going to be taking a, a wage from your from your business for um, quite some time. Um, but I was lucky, you know, moving back to Mayo had uh, reduced costs, uh, cost of the cost of living greatly. I was able to afford a rent in Castlebar uh, for an office space. And um, uh, bear in mind, we're talking about 2010 now. where So presumably rents were pretty low at the time. They were pretty could negotiate a good. Yeah, they were. They were. Half the town was, 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 um, was lying empty. And uh, so I had the pick of, of the places. And... Um, I mean, it's absolutely a wonderful thing to have done, uh, and I would recommend it to anybody. And an interesting anecdote to, uh, to to setting up was I had made a number of inquiries from solicitors um, in the West uh, about setting up, and uh, all were fairly uh, pessimistic uh, about uh, the prospect. All were fairly, you know, uh, doomsday-ish about... Uh, and, I mean, you know, they, that was the time. Um but if I had listened to uh, to that advice, I wouldn't have set up. Um, I had to believe in myself and believe that there was a plan that I was able to implement, and that was to set up a practice that would grow and become successful. And um, uh, so, um, you know, I was coming to a town uh, that was the county town that, that uh, had um, uh, the hospitals, the factories, the um, courthouse, um, you know, sort of a, thr- a thriving centre, so all of those factors were, were, were important in my decision. Um, and it was, um, it was the right decision now, uh, looking back. Sure, I think um, self-belief is a huge part of that for anybody, isn't it? That's, it? It niggles away at you, I think, when you feel that you want to have your own business, even though it's difficult starting out. But um, self-belief, obviously, is a huge factor in all of that. Oh, God, it is. Uh, if you don't believe in yourself, you, uh, you're at nothing. Uh, You've got to believe in yourself and... Um, you got to just uh, uh, focus and get on with it and, um, you know, work hard. And hard work was certainly something that I uh, had to had to work at. Uh, when I started first, I was answering the phones, I was collecting the post, I was doing everything myself. And after about six months, I was able to uh, hire a secretary three days a week. And um, then I suppose as, as time moved on, I was business was growing, I was able to hire some staff and... Uh, it grew slowly and organically, and uh, ten years on, um, ten years, of the, ten years this month actually, uh, there's a staff of ten. Uh, there's myself and, and four solicitors, and uh, two legal executives, and a couple of secretaries, and uh, a bookkeeper. So we're uh, we're we're ten now, and uh, I don't want to be any bigger, but at the same time, uh, who knows what the future holds? Um, obviously, we've had COVID. Uh, lockdown and uh, crashed the economy so uh, but thankfully as I speak to you now business is, is beginning to get back up off its knees and, uh, and we're seeing 
we're seeing some shoots again, you know, green shoots. Super. Well, congrats on the 10 years. That's fantastic. Can we talk about the parchment? Because obviously you're the editor of the parchment and you took over that role in January 2009. That would have been, I presume, was that before you decided to leave Matheson? So the parchment may be known to some of your listeners as uh, the um, magazine for the Dublin Solicitors Bar Association, the DSBA. And it's a magazine that's been in existence for about 30 years Um it was set up first by its founding editor, uh, Justin McKenna, uh, of Partners at Law and Dunleary. And uh, since then, uh, Kevin O'Higgins uh, from Dunleary also uh, was editor and followed by Stuart Gilhooley and uh, Keith Walsh and myself then. And um, there's no question about it. All of those um, uh, gentlemen are, are household names uh, in the legal world in Dublin and beyond. And uh, I suppose they've made the parchment what it is today. It started off as a as a magazine with Justin uh, that came out, um, I think, two or three times a year. Certainly, when I took over in 2009, I wanted to bring it to four times to make it a quarterly publication. I became the editor at the time, actually, when I was just coming into unemployment. It was a little bit later in 2009, but it was a good time because I was able to f- focus my energies on to and my extra time on to the parchment and... Um, I took over from um, Keith Walsh's editor, and uh, I, I can't believe I'm I'm still there today. They haven't got rid of me um, so far, anyway. Um, it's a it's a great magazine. Uh, it comes out in spring, summer, uh, autumn, and winter, four times a year, and it's um, it's a it's, it's not a free magazine, but it's part of their membership. Uh, if you're a member of the DSBA, uh, you you get the magazine as part of the membership, and. Um, it's online. Uh, it, uh, all of the previous past editions are online too, uh, going back uh, quite some years. So that's at, um, at dsba.ie. And the magazine is a 64-page uh, full-color uh, publication that uh, covers the stories that are the, the, the news and, and, and articles that are relevant to practitioners. Uh, we try and cover uh, all um, aspects of the law um, and all areas of practice as best we can. Uh, it it wouldn't be possible without the contributors. Uh, contributors are uh, solicitors from from across the uh, the capital who are um, mostly committee members of the DSBA. Uh, so there's the Probate and Taxation Committee. They would put forward an article or two for each edition. There's the Litigation Committee, um, and they would do the same. And the Family Law Committee, the Capacity and Mental Health. Uh, Committee. So all of the various committees, of which I think there's seven or eight, uh, organically put forward articles, and then we have other contributing articles, and then we interview people as well. Um, just like what you're doing to me now, I uh, uh, can um, uh, interview people for the parchment, and uh, we have um, uh, we have had uh, Stuart Kilhooley, uh do a series of, of of interviews of people called the cross examination, which uh, has become very successful. And um, we've had some wonderful people over the last 10 years who have been interviewed um, for it. Um, colleagues that people would know, um, former uh, former judiciary, people who have been involved in the law in various aspects. So, you know, it's just a really good read. And then we have the social pages, which are always important. So people like to see who, what faces are who and who's who. Um, and they, um, they take up seven or eight pages at the back, where, you know, from the seminars. Uh, so that's the parchment. And, and I've been able to to work as editor seamlessly from my move from Dublin to Mayo 
because of course we all know that it's easy to work uh, remotely now. Uh, people are um, um, are emphasizing that point particularly now uh, in the lockdown, but I've known that for uh, 10 years because, you know, phone, email, once you've good broadband, you can be anywhere. And it didn't matter that I was down in Castlebar. I'm in Dublin once a week anyway, or thereabouts. So if I need to meet people or have a have a, a, a committee meeting or whatever else. So the magazine um, thrives today. Um, we also send out a copy to the judiciary of the superior courts. They get a complimentary copy of the magazine. And um, I'm told that uh, the, the feedback from them is excellent, that they all appreciate the parchment. And uh, they particularly like to see who's who because they see people appearing before them and sometimes they mightn't be very, very... Um, or fay with with names and things like that. So the, so they find the parchment is very very useful. In very regard, useful. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of uh, the impact on your time with the parchment, how do you manage that? Is it something that you know uh, at the end of the quarter you find yourself pulling your hair out because you've got a deadline to meet, or how has that impacted you? Well, it, it is difficult because uh, putting together a um, um, a sixty four page magazine four times a year is is time consuming and uh, it's a big commitment. Uh, I, ha- I have to say I have a very um, understanding publisher um, who is uh, uh, generally okay to let the let a date slip for for a few days if I'm in a bit of difficulty if I'm tied up in a court case and I can't come to finish the the, the magazine, but we always get there. We've never not delivered, and um, uh, it's about it's about a two week uh, commitment four times a year. So I find that time at night, um, and sometimes during the day, but it's really it's mostly in the evenings and the weekends. So, so something does something does give, but but I enjoy it, and I have a very understanding wife. Sure. And last question is in terms of the potential fallout from obviously the COVID, the pandemic. We saw back in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, the impact it had on the legal profession. What do you think in terms of practitioners around the country in small and medium to sized businesses? Where do you see the real impact in terms of what that can have, the impact that can have on firms uh, nationwide? Well, I, I mean, I speak from just my own um, my own practice, and I think that's a, a, a weather vane for for quite a lot of others. And the big problem that we have at the moment is that uh, personal injury cases are not being uh, heard uh, in the high court, and. Um, fortunate that I have a high court personal injury practice and uh, the problem is we haven't had cases uh, heard since uh, February of this year um, or before February because those practitioners in the west of Ireland rely on the Galway High Court and that sits in in, in various times throughout the year February. It was due to sit in February and I think that was the last time it sat. So we're we're banking up our cases at the moment and um, those high court cases have been the source of work uh, over the last several years. It can take three or four years sometimes, as, as you probably know, to bring a, uh, a high court personal injury case uh, across the line. And um, so those, the fact that those cases are not being resolved um, means that uh, there's no um, uh, settlements, uh, therefore there's no um, bill of costs being drawn up and no checks for costs. Um, and uh, I, d- I, I sort of see the conveyancing aspect of my business and the probate side of the business uh, that pays the bills um, and the rent and the light and the heat and the wages. But it's the, um, 
it's the personal injury uh, cases that um, bring home uh, the significant fees uh, that every practice needs. And um, uh, the sooner that uh, gets back to full hearing, and I know Mary Irvine, the new president of the of the uh, High Court, has has started to make um, um, orders in relation to the resumption of um, of of hearings where evidence has to be given. Okay, will that be done electronically or? I don't think so. Um, I, I it's I think. Personal injury cases will require evidence in person. There, there's a the the jury is still out to so to to many of us practitioners on remote hearings can be very very useful for something like the court of appeal where lawyers are arguing over certain points and they have made submissions, but where evidence has to be given and where a judge has to um, carefully weigh up that evidence um, and look at the deponent who's giving the evidence the witness. And give uh, to look at that witness and, and and observe their their demeanors, their manner, and all of that. I think it's going to be critical. And um, I suppose um, also to say that the last um, two years has been a difficult time for uh, personal injury practitioners to some extent or another. And I say that because, as many of you know, that uh, the and, and thankfully the um, the fraudulent aspects of fraudulent claims in Ireland um, have been uh, largely curtailed and they have been called out by judges across the country and they have been um, thrown out. And solicitors like myself um, uh, tend to have a good radar for um, those type of cases and we try and avoid them at all costs. Um, No solicitor wants to spend and waste their time on a case that's going to end up being chucked out or uh, being um, in any way fraudulent. So it's a good thing that that has happened. What's not been a good thing, uh, I have to say, is that genuine plaintiffs, people who have had genuine accidents and uh, have been genuinely hurt, um, that they have found themselves under a great deal of pressure not to bring a case because they fear that they'd be treated in the same way as these other litigants who have uh, brought the whole system into disrepute. And um, that's the difficult part um, where uh, genuine um, people who have been injured um, are, are worried that it'll somehow come back on them. When, in fact, they're not inventing anything. They've had a genuine uh, injury and um, so that's a, that's a concern as well. Yeah, that that would be something that I, I would have seen uh, a lot uh, and continue to see. That's a fallout from from. But as I say, I have to say it's been a good thing that the courts have thrown out all those cases and more more weeding the better um, because they're a waste of 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 everyone's uh, time, taxpayers' money insurance money and um, they, they give us as solicitors a very bad name so we need that to be eradicated from the profession as much as we can but the impact it's it's scaring and putting the fear of God into the genuine plaintiff and that's that's a, just a, con- a big concern. Okay and in terms of the what would you see as a potential solution to the backlog now 
Well, I mean, practitioners have, have unfortunately little or no uh, unlocking mechanism to to free up uh, the system. The system is the way it is, and in fairness, it, the judiciary have agreed to sit through September, which is a which is a big plus for for the superior courts would not not previously have sat through September. Um, so that's going to help the backlog, and I know that the judiciary also sat through parts of um, the Whit vacation and. Um, and the Easter vacation. So I think they were working, they are working hard towards, the, the backlog is pretty, uh, pretty scary uh, because, um, you know, uh, I issued a motion there at the end of July and I have a return date for uh, January for a simple motion in a high court case. So it's going to knock everything on. You'd normally get a date in, in October, you know, in the ordinary course. But so I, I think it unfortunately falls to the judges to, to try and deal with the backlog, uh, we'll do whatever we can as practitioners to um, uh, to sit at irregular hours if we have to, or on irregular days, or whatever the case may very well be. But um, we're in their good hands. Okay, John. Well, look once again. Thanks a million for joining me as my first guest. It's been a pleasure. It's always nice to meet you, and it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the legal lunch. I wish you every continued success and congratulations on ten years in business. That's a great achievement. Thank you, Boric, and and uh, again, thank you for having me as your first guest. And I wish you and and your and your new podcast program every success for uh, the future editions. 